0: On this clay brick is known as cuneiform. And the script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Padmas to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Well, what on earth has hell got to do with mothers? <laughs> Because that's our topic this morning. Well, let me tell you about my mother for just a moment. My mom and dad, I did mention in an program, they were totally non-believers until God touched their lives. And uh, my mother had one great thing in her life, and that was this phrase... Few believe, few realise they have a heaven to win and a hell to shun. You think about those words for a moment. Many, I should say, few believe that we have a heaven to win and a hell to shun. Think about that sometime. And my mother set her mind to make sure as much as she could that her children would be in that heavenly kingdom. That's what she set her heart to do. She would sometimes warn us about hell, and we're going to talk about that, because sometimes when we're going our own way and doing our own thing and will not listen, even in the scriptures, you notice that God reminds us and there are two pathways that we're traveling on, one to heaven or one to destruction. And I thank God for my mother who made those principles important to us. And this afternoon's program, I'm going to talk a bit about heaven, okay? <laughs> That's the sweetener. Well, actually, this program is going to be sweet too. You probably didn't realize what the Bible really says about this topic. So here is our topic this morning, to hell and back. Now, the reason we're taking up this topic, of course, we're having a a series of meetings down at Hornsby Theatre, and we happen to be in this point in our program, all right? Uh, But I think you'll find it good. Maybe we should have had this for the Father's Day, perhaps. (laughs) It might make more sense to you, but you'll see what I'm talking about. To hell and back, the assassination of God. I want you to think about the incredible amount of material that is coming out today on the subject of hell. There are many books being written and many people on the YouTube who are saying, I went to hell and came back again. This is not an isolated incident. Incidents. Many people are saying, I've been to hell and come back again. Is that true? How would we know? That's the question we want to answer this morning. Because some of you were at the program when we talked last weekend about ghosts, life after death. And we showed very clearly that the Bible makes it very plain that when a person dies, they are likened to having a sleep. And they only wake up when Jesus returns the second time, you will recall. So let's go to this topic. I want you to notice this is America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards probably the greatest of the American theologians. Notice what he had to say about hell. Erring sinners, he said, would be held like loathsome insects by the hand of God over the fiery pit of hell. And when they cry out for mercy, he says, How will God respond? Edwards answered, He will be so far from pitying you when you cry to him that it is said he will only laugh and mock, he says, at those who rejected his mercy and reaped their just reward. Now, how about that for a statement? This is bedtime reading for the kids back then. Nice way to go to bed, isn't it? But let me tell you, there are serious consequences to such teaching. Serious consequences. Let me share with you the life of a man. Robert Ingersoll was a famous famous agnostic. He was brought up by a Christian father, and this was bedtime reading for Robert Ingersoll. This sort of thing. I want you to notice. His father told him, as a preacher, there were babies in hell not more than a few inches long who were th- to destined to burn throughout there throughout eternity. Now, Robert Ingersoll said what we would all say. Well, if that's God, he needs a savior. You know what I mean? Robert Ingersoll said, well, if that's what God's like, I hate God. And let me tell you, there are more agnostics and atheists in the world today than we care to think about who are that way because of this teaching. This is for sure. And we better get a handle on what the Bible really says about this subject. Or we'll end up like Robert Ingersoll or make Robert Ingersolls of other people. So let's go to the Bible and have a look at what the Bible actually teaches on this subject. Is hell real? That's the first question we want to look at this morning. And another one, are there really people suffering in hell right now while we're sitting here this day? What does the Bible say about this really? How can you have hell and a loving God? That's a good question, isn't it? How is that possible to have hell and a loving God? These are some of the questions we want to look at. Now, let's deal with this one first. How can you have hell and a loving God? There are three things, three facts we need to understand to get our head around this question here. Because the Bible talks of a loving God, and yet it also talks of hell. So what about this thing? All right, well, let's begin with this, and we'll answer all those three questions this morning. First of all, if you want to understand how you can have hell and a loving God, you and I must understand this little word called sin, S-I-N. It's pretty small, but it's pretty, pretty big, really. The Bible puts it this way. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You will notice here that eternal life is a gift, but death or eternal death, because he contrasts death with eternal Life, eternal death really is a wage, it's the consequence, it's not a gift. So he says eternal death is a wage, the Bible says. All right, now I want to talk for a moment about the second death. He who overcomes, the Bible says, shall not be hurt by the second death. There is a death that's coming from which we'll never wake up. The Bible calls this the second death. You may remember last weekend, I think it was the one before, we talked about the thousand years. In fact, it was last weekend, last Saturday morning, wasn't it? We talked about the thousand years of Revelation 20. This period here is bound by two resurrections you will remember. A resurrection called the first resurrection that Jesus talked about, which is a resurrection that is to life, that happens when he comes the second time we mention. And then there's a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years, which is called the resurrection of condemnation, which means when a person comes up in that resurrection, and as we saw last week, then people are forever put aside. They never wake up. It's called the second death, the Bible says. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, those who are God's friends who have accepted Jesus. Over such, it says, the second death has no power. Those who are in Christ Jesus, this second death will not happen to them. So eternal death in the Bible, is actually called the second death. The first death, we all die, but those who have followed Christ, accepted him, they come to life and stay alive. But those who have cling to sin and don't want to give it up, then the eternal death is the consequence. Now, the Bible says it's a wage. Now, if I said to you, listen, you work for me, and I say, I'm going to give you a gift for working for me for the last week, and so I hand you your paycheck. You say, this is not a gift. I earned this, right? This is the consequence of my labor. This is not a gift. It's something that you earn. Now, that's how the second death or eternal death is called. It's something that is the consequence of of our actions. You see, God does not give people eternal death or the second death because he says, you wouldn't accept me, so whammo, I'm gonna get even with you for not accepting me. It's not like that. It's the consequence of our choices. And that's what God warns us of. He says, well, this is the result of not choosing me because I am the source of life. So you need to understand there's a consequence to your choice. But it's not because I get even with you. It's just that you unplug, in a sense, from the life support system. You see, because Jesus Christ is actually like the life support system at a hospital. If you're in bed there, and let's say you have your consciousness with you, which doesn't usually happen, doesn't it? And you're plugged into the life support system, and you decide to reach over and you know pull out the plug or something or turn off the switch, it's your choice. The consequence of that choice is death, and that's the same way here. Jesus Christ is the life support system of every person on planet Earth. Should we choose not to plug in or to unplug, then that choice is ours, but there is a consequence to that choice, and that is death, eternal death, because he is the source of life. If you unplug from the source of life, then there is no life, you see. That's the way the Bible puts it. It's the consequence. It's not something because God gets even with us. Those who have the Son, Jesus said, they have life. They plug into the life support system. Those who do not have the Son, they do not have life. These things I have written to you, says Jesus, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the way to have eternal life. Plug into the life support system because in God there is life. So this is Jesus, the life support system for all people. And so eternal death is the consequence of not plugging in or of unplugging from that support system. Now the second thing, if you would have hell and a loving God, is this, parenthood. We must understand something about parenthood. I want you to notice what Jesus said once. Jesus was talking to the people back in his day. Or what man is there, he said, of you? What person among you, if his son shall ask him for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you, he said, give him a snake? Come on, fathers, mothers, how many of you would do that? Dad, can I have a a fish, please? Yeah, here's a snake, son. A deadly, you know, taipan. We would not do such a thing. Now, this is the point Jesus is making. He says, if you then being evil, meaning you and I are sinful people, we make mistakes, if you and I being sinners... Know how to give good gifts to your children, said Jesus. Then how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, he said, give good things to those that ask him? The question, you see, that should be in our mind from this text is, is Are we better than God? Are we better than our Father in heaven? Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus and his Father... Give good gifts to his children who ask. Now you think about this for just a moment. Here's a little kid. Yeah, Mother's Day, right? So mum wants to give him a cookie, a biscuit, an Anzac biscuit. Now she says, listen, guys, these are special biscuits for a special time. Don't touch any of these biscuits until mummy says so. So you know what kids are like when, well, that was what I was like anyway, I guess that's a better way to put it. You want to sneak one behind mum's back. So the little kid, he decides to go help himself to the cookie jar, the Anzac biscuit jar, and uh, mum catches him red-handed. Now, what do you think mum's going to do? Do you think mother is going to douse him with some petrol and set a light to him because of what he's just done, maybe for... Uh, Three weeks, how many would you feel that's okay? How many of you would feel that it'd be okay to do that for, say, a a, a couple of days? Now, come on. Not one of us. Number one, you would say, make the punishment fit the crime, for, for starters, right? This is hardly a fair deal. But secondly, would you do that as a mother, a father? Would you, in actual fact, set a light to your child and enjoy watching them burn for taking a cookie. No, you would not. Therefore, this is Jesus. one of Jesus' points. If you then, you and I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father? You see, my friends, the love of God is at stake in this thing. Let's move on. If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father? Now, if we would not like to understand how you can have hell and a loving God, there's one more thing. Oh, by the way, look at this text. As I live, I don't know how Jonathan Edwards missed this text. You know, God will del- take delight in roasting people over the flames, he said. Look at this text. As I live, says the Lord God, I have what? I have no pleasure. God takes no delight in the destruction of his children. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. You can hear God pleading, turn, he says, turn from your evil ways to his people. Yet the theologians tell us that God delights in this stuff. He does not. And it is very clear from that text and other passages in the Bible that God takes no delight in the destruction of any of his children at all there's the last thing that we would understand if we would have hell and a loving God and that is this we must understand what really happened at the cross of Calvary what really took place when Jesus died notice what the Bible says but he was wounded for our transgressions when Jesus died he was wounded for your sin your mistakes my mistakes the mistakes of the whole world He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your, our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, he says, and with his stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. And the Lord, Jehovah God, has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of every one of us, the Bible says. Now, you think about that. Christ, in other words, was counted as a sinner because he took your sin and my sin, the sin of every one of us, the Bible says. Notice what Paul puts it this way. For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. These are the most marvelous words in all of the Bible, that he who knew no sin was counted as a sinner. Now, Was Calvary, what Jesus suffered on the cross, was the physical death? Was this the main result of what took place there? Well, certainly he died, but it was much more than that when you examine what took place at the cross of Calvary. Jesus cried out, the Bible says, with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you what? What is the word? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Yes, the cross is a, is a horrible thing, and the reason it's horrible in one sense is because of the separation that Jesus experienced from the Father. He felt that God wasn't near any longer. Why have you forsaken me? He sensed that when he died on the cross. Now, you will remember this marvelous passage in the writings of Isaiah, but your iniquities, we shared this one day, your iniquities, our sins have separated us from God. That's the big deal about sin. We said it it breaks relationships and it severs our relationship with God this way. He says your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. So at the cross, Jesus felt forsaken of God. Because of sin, your sin and my sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that's the reason, of course, we saw that's why he died. Because of sin, your sin and my sin. The wages of sin is death. But the real deal was the separation that he felt from his father. That's why in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, take this cup from me. Please, I don't want to go through this but I will because of your love and my love for your children. All right. So you see, when Christ was on the cross and he cried out, my God, he was experiencing the eternal separation that will one day take place between God and those who choose to cling to sin and hold on to it and not let it go. That's what Christ experienced so that we might never experience eternal separation. That is the big deal of Calvary, and it is actually the big deal of what the Bible calls H-E-L-L. It's not so much the fire... It's about the forsakenness. These words here, he himself has said, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. Those are the same words that Jesus cried on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? So that you might never be forsaken down in that time that is to come, that the Bible certainly talks about. Amazing grace when you think about it. Christ was willing to die eternally for you and for me. You think about that. Christ was willing to say, I will never have life and I will be forever separated from my Father who is the source of life because of love for us. That's amazing grace, is it not? If you think that's not true, let me tell you, Moses, you remember Moses was willing to do that. Christ was willing to be separated eternally for you and me, just as was Moses. Remember, the Israelites had sinned terribly. And Moses made this prayer, yet now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses was willing to lose his eternal life for these Israelite people who were a grumbling lot, weren't they, many times. He was willing to die eternally. Well, how much more do you think Christ was willing to lose his eternal life for you and me? This is amazing. Amazing grace. Eternal separation, my friends, from God is what hell is ultimately about. That's what it really is all about. So how can we have hell and a loving God? Three things. Never forget them. Number one, what is sin? And what is the consequence of sin? The consequence is eternal death, the second death. It's a wage. It's not something. It's not a gift. It's not because God gets even. It's because of our choice, and that's the consequence to our choice. How can you have hell and loving God? Because of parenthood. Are we better than God? We would never do such a thing. Yet people accuse God of doing this sort of thing, roasting and toasting people on and on and on for eternity. We would never do it. And the last one is Calvary. Really, it's all about separation from God. But there will be fire. We must, we, must, we must front up to that. There will be fire. So we need to look at that now. But that's how we can have hell and a loving God. But there will be fire, as we said. So let's have a look at that right now. When is hell? There are many people, those books, are clear evidence of that, that people believe that right now, while we're sitting here, there are some people down there somewhere who are roasting and toasting and have been doing so for many years, centuries. Is this true? What does the Bible say? Well, let's go to the Bible and have a look what Jesus said about this. I want you to notice very clearly, when Jesus said the fire would take place, Jesus gave a parable about a farmer who sowed seed, and the farmer uh, was happy that the seed was planted. And a couple of days later, the servants came and said, hey, listen, there's some weeds among the wheat. Someone's planted some weeds to wreck your crop. Shall we pull up the weeds? He said, no, no, don't do that. Let them both grow together. Now, watch Jesus' explanation. What does this parable mean, this story mean? He said these words. He answered and said, he that sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's me, said Jesus. I sowed the good seed. He said, and the field, that's the world where we throw the seed. He said, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. And the weeds that were planted are the children of the evil one. They're the devil's children, if you like. And the enemy that sowed them, he said, is the devil. He planted those. And the harvest is when? The harvest is the end of the world. Now, notice that. And the reapers are the angels, because we saw last week that Christ comes with his angels to reap, to gather his children home at the end of the world. As therefore Jesus summed it up, as therefore the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be when? In the end of the world. Jesus made it very plain, yes, there will be a fire, but there is no fire yet. He said the fire is at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling, and those that sin, meaning they hold on to sin. They don't want to give it up. And he said he will throw them into the furnace of fire. So there is no question, yes, we have to acknowledge the Bible teaches, yes, there's a fire and we'll understand that, but it is not now. There is nobody roasting and toasting now. They wait till the end of the world. I hope we can see that very clearly from the teachings of Jesus himself. So hell or the fire is at the end of the world and it is not now. Notice what the Bible says here. But the day of the Lord will come. Yeah, it's future, you notice here. It's future. Not now. The day of the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, says Peter, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So you can see clearly, even Peter teaches this is future. This is not now. The day will come. Very clear from the Bible, Now, hell actually is at the end of what we call the thousand years. You will recall, those of you who were with us last week, maybe here or down in Mount Cola, that we saw that the fire falls at the end of the thousand years. The Bible says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and of brimstone. So yes, there is a fire, but it's at the end of the thousand years. Now, I I mentioned last week, you can almost see God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit sobbing their hearts out, head in hands. Let the fire fall. How do we know that that's the picture of God when he has to let the fire come? Because when Jesus was looking over Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often would I have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Your house is left to you desolate. And the Bible says Jesus wept. He sobbed his heart out over Jerusalem. This is a clear picture, let me tell you. And he was talking about what's going to happen at the end of the world. God takes no delight in the destruction of his children. The worst, he takes no delight in the destruction of anybody. Head in hands, God sobs his heart out as he has to do what God will one day have to do. This is what the Bible calls hell, but it's at the end of the thousand years. Let's notice that clearly. Now, the Bible teaches also that Satan and those who cling to sin are completely destroyed. I want you to notice the words of the Bible. You will see very clearly from what I'm going to read to you from the Bible that nobody is going to roast and toast on for eternity even when the fire comes after the thousand years. Nobody is going to roast and toast like people say they are. This is the Bible's teaching. So notice it with me. The Bible says, "Behold the day is coming," says Malachi. "It's burning like a furnace." And all the proud, those who are, you know, that sort of people, big, arrogant people, and all that do wickedly and wickedness shall be stubble. The Bible says the day is coming that shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither what? Neither root nor branch. Nothing will be left according to the Bible. And you shall tread them, you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be, what's the next word? They shall be ashes. They're not going to be burning on their crying out, please, please, like the picture was when we started. They will become ashes. In other words, they will cease to be, the Bible says, under the soles of your feet. In the day that I make, says the Lord. God is not like some people picture God. Not at all. There's coming a day when, yes, there'll be fire, but when that fire has done its work... There will be nothing left but ashes, says the Bible. You think about it, ashes. Even Satan himself, the Bible says, will also be like that. Yet the picture that we have today by many people, by many Christians even, is that's the devil there. He's stoking this thing and he keeps the thing going on and on and on and on infinite into infinite into, into eternity, right? That's the picture. But look what the Bible says. The Bible says these words you were perfect we'd read these words or part of them a few three or four weeks ago you were perfect he's talking about this being lucifer you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity or sin was found in you oh covering cherub the guardian angel of god you see there your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you were proud in other words Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, the Bible says. It devoured you, and I turned you what? I turned you to ashes. This is a prophecy. He's speaking as if it's already happened. But he's saying, this is what's going to happen to you, Lucifer. I turned you to ashes upon the earth. You have become a horror and shall be what? No more forever. There is no picture in the Bible of a being who's going to keep things going on and on and on. No, he will be reduced to ashes and he will be no more. How much plainer can the Bible get, you see? The idea of a God that has been, who roasts people is really a, a a terrible picture which assassinates the character of God big time. No question about it. The total annihilation, the Bible teaches, of Satan and all who freely choose to live without God. That God warns us. That's the consequence of our choice. But that's what it is, total annihilation. Nothing left. No thoughts, nothing. You see, hell is the consequence of disconnecting from Christ the life support system because God is the source of life. To unplug from him... That's the consequence of our choice. It's the consequence, you see, of using our freedom to say no to God. And we are allowed to do that. But realize there's a consequence. All choices in life have consequences. And thank God, he warns us of those consequences so that we can make an intelligent decision and think about these things. Now, here's a question, I guess, that some people have. Why does God even have a hell? Why does he destroy people like this? Well, let me tell you something. You and I know very well, if you have a rotten apple, what does it do? It'll send the rest of the barrel rotten, right? We have culling among sheep today and cattle because we all know that if this is left to be, this this diseased animal, it will ruin the rest of the herd or whatever it is. We understand those sorts of things. Well, God evidently can see this is going to be a a blot on the whole of creation it will contaminate things so God says I've had to put it aside I have to destroy those people who cling to sin and this will be the consequence of their choice their actions now when the fire has done its work the fire goes out it does not keep a light it completely goes out because the Bible tells us that this earth where this fire takes place, becomes the site of the last empire of God. Notice the words of the Bible in Revelation. After the fire, John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea, says John. God will take this world and he will recreate life on it. Because Jesus said the meek will inherit this planet. But after the fire, God recreates. God takes no joy, you see, in destroying those who decide to cling to their sin. Say to them, let me read this text again. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have what? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn turn from your evil way thank God for a text like that in the Bible God is a loving God and he doesn't want his children to be forever destroyed so there's nothing left now in closing this morning there are some texts that you have in your head probably some questionable texts. you've heard some texts that maybe preachers use maybe your parents have used on you about this and they make you think no is this the real truth here Well, I hope you've seen so far, number one, that hell is not now, it's yet to come. I hope you see that when the fires of hell do their work, there is only ashes left. But what about these questionable texts? Let me put them up to you, up on the screen for you and explain them quickly. Here's one. What about this idea of eternal fire? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Well, let's share the text with you just quickly here. Jesus is talking. Then he will also say to those on the right hand, on the left hand, sorry, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, doesn't that sound like the fire is everlasting? Doesn't it say everlasting fire? Well, yes, it does. But let's have a look at something here. The Bible says in one place that Sodom and Gomorrah, those twin cities, were destroyed by eternal fire. Have a look at the text here. Let's go to the book of Jude. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner uh, to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone, he says, after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what sort of fire? eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says, had this eternal fire on them. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? Well, I've traveled to the Middle East quite a few times now and I've been to the places where they say this is Sodom, but let me tell you, not one of them, there's a fire there. In fact, that's what the Bible says when Peter talked about this. Peter wrote about Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what he said. Peter said these words, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, into what? Into ashes. In fact, you can go to a site called Babedra, which many people believe is the site of Sodom, and you will see layers of ash, but there's no fire there. He says, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them, he says, an example to those afterward who would live ungodly. In other words, what's he saying here? How come it's an eternal fire, yet things are reduced to ashes? What's he saying? Well, he's saying this. He's telling us the results of the fire are eternal. Not the process is eternal. Not the burning is eternal, but the results of it. In other words, Sodom is no more. The fire did its work, and for eternity there is no more Sodom. It's gone. It's finished. So this eternal fire means a fire whose effects are eternal. Those who cling to sin are forever destroyed, not forever being destroyed, not forever in the flame, but the flame has done its work and now they are no more for eternity. This is the way the Bible uses it with those texts. Here's another one. Some people say, what about this text here? What about unquenchable fire? Doesn't the Bible say that the fire is unquenchable? Notice this text here. We come to Jesus talking, if your hand causes you to cut it off, it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Doesn't that sound like a fire that never goes out? Well, come with me to another text in the book of Jeremiah. Let's go to it. Here's Jerusalem, 600 BC, the time of Jeremiah, the time of Daniel and so on. Notice what the Bible says, what happened to Jerusalem through the Babylonians. The Bible says these words, I will kindle a fire in its gates. It shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall be what? It shall not be quenched. It's unquenchable, says the Bible. Yet I've been to Jerusalem a number of times and I've been to the places where the Babylonians destroyed the houses of Jerusalem and here's what you find. Here's the burnt room. These are the ruins from the time of of uh, jeremiah and so on when this jerusalem was destroyed it's 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 not a fire that's still burning today you can even see the gates of jerusalem and the ones down underneath it the archaeologists have discovered there are no gates burning today from that old time yet the bible says it was unquenchable what does it mean it means this man cannot put out this fire when it's done its work then it will go out but man cannot put it out it's unquenchable God will destroy and then the fire will go out, but man cannot put out the fire. And we see texts from the Bible that show what it's talking about. One more. What about a forever fire? Doesn't the Bible say the smoke goes up forever and ever? Have about a look at this one here. This is from Revelation. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Wow, that sounds like it, doesn't it? There goes the smoke. You know, you can still see it. Let's see what the Bible says on this one. You heard the story of Jonah? I'm sure you have. Story of Jonah is famous, isn't it? This man who went into the fish's belly. Notice what Jonah said. Bible says these words. Jonah's praying actually from the fish. You'd pray from a belly of a fish too, wouldn't you, if it swallowed you up? He says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me for how long? Come on now. Forever. Was Jonah in the fish's belly forever? Is he still there today? Well, of course, you know that's not true. In fact, the Bible tells us it's not, it was, he wasn't there in the way we understand forever. The Bible says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the great fish, yet the Bible calls it forever. Probably Jonah thought it was forever, you know. But no, that's not what, what he meant. How, the, the way the Bible uses forever is not the way we use forever. We let, must let the Bible explain itself here. All right, let's have a look at another one. Here is Samuel. You know the wonderful mother of Samuel, Hannah, wonderful mum. You read it in the book of Samuel. And she uh, wanted this child and finally she had one in answer to prayer and then she dedicated this little boy to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God. I want you to notice what she said about this. The Bible says, talking of Hannah. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned will I go up, in other words. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord. And she said he may remain there for how long? Forever. Therefore, she says in another passage in verse 28, therefore, I lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. How long is forever here in this passage? It's not the way we understand forever. It's as long as he lives. You see, that's very clear from this passage. So forever has to do with what you're talking about and the way the Bible uses it. Sometimes it means where God says you're going to have eternal life. Yes, that means forever and ever. Why? Because the source of life, you're plugged into Christ who had no beginning, who has no end. So you have it because you're in him. No question that that's the sort of forever we understand. But the Bible uses the word forever in other places differently. It means as long as the thing lasts. So when it says the fire, the fire, the smoke, it sends forever and ever. It means as long as that thing is still there. And we've seen they go to ashes. All right, so this is the way the Bible uses. It means a limited period of time even in the Bible. Like Samuel, like Jonah, forever in the fish? No, not how we understand forever, but how the Bible understands a limited period of time. Now, let me close this this morning by saying eternal fire, this idea of eternal torment in hell, it denies the truth of death absolutely denies the truth of the Bible on death. Because what does the Bible say? What happens when a person dies? Yet the Bible calls this the second death, the eternal death. But yet what does the Bible say what happens when a person dies? The Bible says the living know that they will die. We know that. But the dead know how much? They know nothing. Yet the picture of these people who write these books, I was in the fires of hell, and man, it was terrible down there, and I, no, no. If you're dead, you know nothing. So the people going to hell and staying there for eternity, suffering on and on and on, feeling all that pain, this contradicts the Bible. The dead know nothing, you see. Next one. Here's another thing. Not only would they know something, but eternal torment in hell denies the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It denies the gospel, the heart of the gospel. Look what the Bible says. The most famous text in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Here are some people who have eternal life. And it's not good quality, I'll admit, right? They're down in the hot place, burning on and on and on and on and on in eternity, according to some people. Yet they got it without believing in Jesus. It contradicts the Bible. You only have eternal life, and in the Bible that's quality life. You only have eternal life if you believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you have eternal destruction. There is nothing left. The ashes, that's it, you see. So this contradicts the very gospel that Jesus taught, which is why there are many theologians today who are saying what the church has been teaching or many in the church have teached is absolutely wrong. I can show you here are three theologians. Here, this fellow here on your left, Charles Pinnock. He's a Pentecostal. He believes with exactly what we've shared this morning. Here's a guy in the middle. This is Hans Kung, a, a very famous Roman Catholic theologian. He believes just what we've seen this morning. And here's an Anglican preacher. This Anglican preacher, John Stott, he believes exactly what we've shared this morning. You see, there are people today who are realizing this idea that has been put on Christianity by people who have not read the Bible properly is is a terrible blot on the character of God, and it's wrong. And it's done great disservice to the Christian faith, and that's why many people do not believe in God today. Let me put it up here for you. Charles Pinnock, he wrote these words. He says, I suppose one might be afraid of a God like that. Well, would you be afraid of a God like that who roasts and toasts you for eternity? I sure would be. He says, I, he says, I suppose we would be afraid of God like that. But could we love and respect him? That's the question. You could not love and respect a God like that. And one more. I think it sums it up beautifully for us. This is Charles Pinnock again. He says, everlasting torture is intolerable from a moral point of view because it pictures God acting like a bloodthirsty monster, right, who maintains, he says, an everlasting Auschwitz, like the concentration camp with the fire going. He maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for his enemies, whom he does not even allow to die. They've got to suffer on, he says. I suppose we might be afraid of a God like that that we just read, but could we love and respect him? And then he notes these words here, and this hits right to the heart. Anthony Flew, he says, an influential atheistic philosopher, was right to object that if Christians really believe that God created people with the full intention of torturing them, some of them, in hell forever, they might as well give up the effort to defend Christianity, and that's the truth. That's the truth of this thing. And that's why people don't believe in God, many of them, because this is one fundamental reason. Now, my friends, you think about it. If that's the picture of God, one day God will have to apologize to Adolf Hitler because Adolf Hitler did those terrible things in camps like Auschwitz, which you can see in these places here. He burnt. Many of those people were alive when they went into those ovens, tragically. Many were not because they were gassed beforehand, but many were alive still. But at least they died and were put out of their misery. But the picture of God is that no, God does this on and on and on and on infinite and enjoys it. You see the danger here. This teaching has made too many people hate God. And I thank God that in the Bible we have the truth of the matter. In the Bible, we see God is not like that. God is not like anywhere near a human father who sometimes they delight not in this sort of stuff, but other things. Are we better than God? not on your life, not when we have a God who would go himself to the cross of Calvary. I remember reading a hearing of a father of a, of a farmer who went out what the, the, the that, uh, during the night the farm. Yard said burnt down. A serious fire, roaring fire had come raging through the farmer's property and it killed many of his animals. So he comes out next morning and he surveys all of the damage and the death to his animals. And as he's wandering around, he sees a, a pile of feathers, blackened feathers on the ground. And in his discouragement, he gives them a kick and out from underneath pops some bunch of little chickens from underneath those black feathers. And he realized what had happened in that raging fire the night before. A mother had called her chickens underneath her wings and gathered them together, and she had paid the supreme sacrifice. This sort of thing happens. I was in Perth sharing this story, and someone said, that happened in my farm too. You see, my friend, a mother chicken gave her life for her little chickens. The same has happened for everyone on planet Earth. A great God became a human being for the one great purpose to die so that you and I could be gathered in the sheltering protection of his great grace and love. Let's bow together in prayer. Loving Father in heaven, oh, what a terrible picture people have painted of God as if he's some bloodthirsty monster that delights in seeing the suffering for eternity of his children whom he made and died for. Oh God, today we've seen the truth. But Lord, we need to plug into that life support system because that same God who we've seen this morning is not like people say he As He does tell us that there will come a time when people will be no more and we need to plug into the life support system, Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you want to say this morning, Lord, I want to be plugged into the life support system to Jesus Christ. God, give me life. Give me Jesus. Just raise your hand this morning to tell the Lord, give me Jesus. Give me life in him because he is the way, the truth and the life. He's the one who protects us from what God tells us is going to come. Because it must come. Sin must be put aside. Evil must be forever eradicated. But thank God that in Christ we have life. Put your hand up this morning if you'd like to say, Lord, I want to plug into that life support system. I want to stay plugged in. Thank you, Lord, for the hands that are raised this morning. And thank you for the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM.